Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Genesis chapter 3 verses 14 through 15 New American Standard Bible Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it, to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. Genesis chapter 9 verses 8 through 16, New American Standard Bible. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. Today on Anchored by Truth, we want to continue looking at some of the key scriptures that are present in different books of the Bible that help illustrate that the Bible really is one single story of our magnificent God unfolding His plan of redemption. I'm here today with R.D. Fierro, author and founder of Crystal Sea Books and part-time personal chef. He often heats the leftovers in our microwave. But today, there's nothing left over about what we're going to discuss, because today we're going to talk about two more of the scriptures that R.D. has chosen to help us see the remarkable unity of the story told by the entire Bible. R.D., would you care to remind us of what we discussed in our last episode of Anchored by Truth? I'd be happy to. This series on Anchored by Truth is all about showing that the Bible tells one continuous story from Genesis to Revelation. Now, that story focuses on a person, and the person, of course, is Jesus. It focuses on a people, and that people is the company of believers that have accepted Christ as their Savior. And that story focuses on a process, and that process is the process of redemption how the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are going about redeeming that people so that group of people can spend eternity with God in heaven. So this series is all about the big story that's in the Bible of creation, fall, and redemption, and a story that is focused on a person, a people, and a process. In our first episode of this series, we checked out two scriptures from the early part of the book of Genesis. The first scripture, appropriately enough, was Genesis 1-1, which describes the creation of the heavens and the earth. 
And the second scripture that we looked at last time sadly described man's fall in the Garden of Eden. So I'd like to recall just two important points that we made in our first episode of this series, the episode that we had last time on Anchored by Truth. The first point I'd like to recall is that the very first verse of Scripture mentions the heavens, plural, and the earth, singular. Right away on day one, we see that there are multiple heavens, but only one earth, and that setup gives us a clue that the big story is going to be about something that happens on the earth, but that involves the heavens. And indeed, as we go through the rest of the Bible, we see that that is how the rest of the story does unfold. The story primarily occurs on earth, but there are elements of the story that are going to be introduced from time to time from one of the heavenly realms. The second point that I want to recall is that the fall of man helps to emphasize this first point. Man fell in the Garden of Eden, so man fell on the earth, but man fell after being tempted by a being, Satan, who came from one of the heavenly realms. So, Satan brought the temptation that caused man's fall, or that resulted in man's fall, to the earth from heavens. But I want to re-emphasize that the only thing that Satan brought to earth was the temptation. Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit by their own free decision, and so Satan brought the temptation, but Adam and Eve consummated that temptation with sin of their own volition. So the temptation came from heaven, but the sin occurred on earth. So the temptation was turned into sin on the earth, even though the temptation came from heaven. Hmm, that's such an important observation. The drama that unfolds in scripture has earth as the main stage, but there's plenty that happens on the main stage that involves activity that isn't confined to earth. Satan brought temptation to earth, but man's actual rebellion was man's choice on earth. But also, as you pointed out last time, a believer's ultimate destiny is to be with God in heaven. So, not only does Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 give us hints about the story, it also gives us hints about the ending. But let's not get too far ahead of where we're going. The next step in God's unfolding plan of redemption, after the creation and fall, are covered in our opening scriptures for today. So obviously, today we're going to talk about the first mention of God's plan of redemption and another big event, the flood and the inauguration of the Noahic Covenant. Yes. Just a reminder to our listeners, God's plan of redemption unfolds in an entire series of covenants that God inaugurates. Now, there's not necessarily universal agreement among all scholars about the exact number of those covenants, but there is pretty widespread agreement on most of those covenants. The first two covenants that the scholars typically recognize are the covenant of works, which Adam and Eve failed to keep, and then the next covenant is the covenant of grace, which God initiated on earth after Adam's failure. But the next covenant in the sequence, just from a chronological standpoint, is the covenant that you just mentioned, the Noahic covenant. And of course, we get the name of that covenant from Noah, who was the hero of the flood story. But before we get to Noah's story, I want to take a look at today's first scripture, which is sometimes termed by biblical scholars, the Proto-Evangelium. Proto-Evangelium is a compound word made up of two Greek words. The first word is protos, meaning first, and evangelion, meaning gospel, or good news. Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 is commonly thought of being the first mention of the good news of salvation in the Bible. 
Many Bible commentators have pointed to God's pronouncement that God said he would put enmity between Satan and the woman as the first indication of the virgin birth of the promised Savior. God specifically said that enmity would involve the woman's seed, but there was no mention of Adam in the pronouncement. Exactly. And commentators also point out that when describing how that enmity would be expressed, the scripture says that the enmity would occur because the woman's seed would bruise Satan's head, whereas Satan would bruise the seed's heel. Now, some translations use the word strike instead of bruise, and that may be a little more appropriate for contemporary audiences. And of course, commentators point out that striking or crushing or bruising the head is fatal, whereas striking or bruising the heel, it may be painful, but it is unlikely to be fatal. So scholars see in this juxtaposition, the bruising of the head or the bruising of the heel, a graphic description of the transaction that occurred on Calvary. Jesus' sacrificial and atoning death occurred on Calvary. And so when that happened, Jesus was obviously bruised by Satan. But at Calvary, Jesus destroyed Satan's work in the sense that now full and complete salvation was available for those who would place their trust in Jesus. Those who would place their trust in Jesus after the crucifixion and the resurrection now had the possibility to have a full and complete fellowship with God. Well, of course, destroying that fellowship with God was one of Satan's original goals. So when Jesus died a sacrificial and atoning death on the cross, he destroyed Satan's primary work. And so, of course, that can be considered easily that he was crushing Satan's head. But, of course, Jesus could only destroy the work of Satan by dying on the cross. Now, naturally, we think of fatal blows and death as the same, and they would be for anyone but Jesus. But for Jesus... The death on the cross was by no means the end of his story. It was just the completion of one part of his earthly mission. Jesus was always in control of his own destiny. In John chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus said, quote, No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily, for I have the authority to lay it down when I want to, and also to take it up again. Unquote. And that's exactly what Jesus did. On the third day, he rose up out of the tomb physically and continued his earthly mission for another 40 days before ascending to the Father. So, what would have been a fatal blow to anyone else was just a bruise to Jesus' heel. Yes, but let's take another look at the text from Genesis 3.15 and trace its exact words to another place in Scripture, Psalm 22.16. Now, Psalm 22.16 certainly is one of the most messianic of the Psalms, in large part because in Psalm 22, we have a fairly graphic description of a Roman-style crucifixion, but Psalm 22 was written nine or ten centuries, probably close to a thousand years, before the Roman style of crucifixion was ever even invented. So, notwithstanding the fact that the actual Roman method of crucifixion wasn't even going to appear for almost another thousand years, if you read Psalm 22, you see that the description of the agony that the person is enduring in Psalm 22, you'll see how closely it corresponds to, in fact, the physical effects that occur on a cross. And I don't want to go too deep into those today. People can read the psalm for themselves and see the parallels from themselves. But one particularly poignant part of Psalm 22 is in verse 16 of Psalm 22, where it says, An evil gang closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and feet. 
Well, of course, we know that this description, we know that this prophecy of someone piercing the hands and feet, we know that this was literally fulfilled in Jesus' execution on the cross because one of the parts of the body that was pierced by the Romans when they performed the crucifixion was piercing the feet or the ankles. So that particular prophecy was fulfilled quite literally almost a thousand years later. Now, that particular point alone is remarkable, the fact that in Psalm 22, which was probably recorded at least 500 years after the verse in Genesis chapter 3, so the fact that this particular description would occur in a psalm that was written 500 years later is remarkable enough, but now think back to the fact that the original prophecy about the feet of the Messiah, the feet of the Savior intended by God, Think back to the fact that that original prophecy was even given 500 years before the occurrence of Psalm 22. So in other words, the first description of what would happen to the Messiah was given 1,500 years before it happened, but it was a very precise prophecy that would find its ultimate fulfillment in the method of execution that was used in Jesus' crucifixion. Again, just looking at those three parts of Scripture, if you will, the Proto-Evangelium in Genesis chapter 3, Psalm 22, which is a fairly graphic description of the physical effects of an actual crucifixion, and then, of course, the descriptions of the crucifixion of Jesus in the various gospel accounts. When you just look at those three episodes out of a set of scriptures that span 1,500 years, when you just look at those three samples, you see, again, the remarkable unity and continuity of scripture. The fact that something may have been written 1,500 years before it actually occurred does not deter in the slightest way that it is, again, one single story that is unfolding throughout Scripture. So your point is that far from being sort of a poetic or poetical framing of the coming enmity, that God would put between the messianic line of man and the line that Satan would influence. Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 actually contained a remarkable amount of precision. Moreover, Genesis 3.15 was just the first of the dots that God would continue to connect as he unfolded his plan of redemption. Another dot was in Psalm 22.16, and the final dot in the particular line is seen in all four of the gospel accounts of Jesus' death. So what about our next scripture? Why is it a critical part of the big story? Well, chapter 9 of Genesis contains the first of four covenants that are named for a particular person, named for a prophet. And each of these prophets played a pivotal role in God's unfolding plan of redemption. Now, the four people are Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David. And chapter 9 of the book of Genesis is all about Noah. And of course, most people will remember that the story of the flood starts in chapter 5 and chapter 6 of Genesis and then it continues up through chapter 9. So chapter 9 of Genesis is after the flood has occurred, and the ark has landed on Mount Ararat, and in fact it's after the animals and uh, Noah's family has disembarked from the ark. So in chapter 9 of Genesis, God makes a covenant with Noah, and in that covenant God promises never to destroy the earth again by means of a flood. And so that promise of God, that's referred to as the Noahic Covenant. And of course, for a group of people, eight people, Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives, for those eight people who had just gone through this horrific experience of the flood, which included the fountains of the deep opening up, 40 days of calamitous rain, of a flood that rose above the highest mountains on the earth, for the eight people who had gone through that experience, 
God's promise to them that he would never again destroy the earth by means of a flood, well, that, of course, had to be a tremendous promise of reassurance to them. And to provide even more reassurance to Noah and his family, God said, look, I'm going to use the rainbow that's in the clouds as a sign of this covenant. So God said, you don't have to just trust my word. Every time you see a rainbow in the clouds, you and I will both be reminded of the covenant. Now, there's always a part of the discussion that runs through the question of whether or not the rainbow actually existed before the flood or whether God, after the flood, actually created rainbows as a new physical phenomenon. Well, I think that probably the most scholarly opinion that I agree with is that in all likelihood, God did not change the physics of the universe after the flood just to create the rainbow. All that God really did was take a phenomenon, a natural phenomenon that had occurred in the times before the flood. God just took a natural existing phenomenon, the rainbow, and gave it a new meaning. This is by no means the only time in the Bible that God uses something that's been common and gives it a new meaning. We can think of the Lord's Supper, in which God gave a new meaning to the use of the wine and the bread to symbolize his body and blood. So my personal opinion is that God did not create the rainbow after the flood as a new special sign. God just assigned a new meaning to an existing sign because that sign would be so pertinent and so meaningful to Noah's family after they had just been through this horrific flood event. And the Noahic covenant was what is termed an unconditional covenant, because God makes the promise that he won't destroy the earth by means of a flood, but he doesn't require anything of Noah or the other men for that covenant to remain in force. This was different from, say, the covenant of works, which was a conditional covenant. Man had to obey God in order to obtain the benefit of the covenant. But Noah didn't have to do anything. God bound himself unconditionally. So, why do you think God established the Noahic covenant? Well, it's always a dangerous question to ask why God does or did anything. I once heard a pastor say that God was very good at answering a lot of questions, except for the question, why he does anything. And the pastor went on to note that even if God condescended to provide us answers to the question why, our finite minds cannot understand the infinite's thinking. As God said in Isaiah chapter 55 verses 8 and 9, My thoughts and my ways are not like yours. Just as the heavens are higher than the earth, my thoughts and my ways are higher than yours. So I can't really provide an answer to the question of why God established the Noahic Covenant, but I think I can point out some lessons from that covenant that we can learn from. I think there are some observations we can make about God's establishment of the Noahic Covenant that can give us important and frankly helpful information, even for our lives today. Which are? Well, the first observation I would make is that God, when he sent the flood to destroy the bulk of mankind, but he selected Noah to continue the human race, that that process of destruction of many, but the selection of one to continue the process of redemption was a pattern that God would repeat more than once, even after Noah. You know, before Adam's sin, God had told Adam to multiply and fill the earth. In other words, God had told Adam, look, I want you to be fruitful for you and your descendants to occupy this whole earth which I had created for you. Well, even after Adam fell in the Garden of Eden, Adam and his descendants continued to fill the earth, 
But unfortunately, Adam's descendants, Adam's immediate children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, etc., did start to fill the earth, but they didn't become any more righteous. As a matter of fact, unfortunately, Adam's descendants started becoming more and more wicked as they went along. Well, ultimately, Adam's descendants became so wicked that the Bible tells us that God could only find one righteous person on the face of the earth, and that was Noah. So God took that righteous person, Noah, and his wife and his sons and their wives, God took the righteous portion of mankind, and he elected to keep them alive even while he destroyed the rest of humanity. So again, you see here very clearly that God had given a command to Adam, Adam failed to keep the command. Adam's descendants also failed to keep the commands that they were given. The big group starts to become so and so wicked that ultimately God had no choice but to destroy them. But God never abandoned his original plan and purpose of redemption. God preserved Noah and his family, kept them alive, not only to keep the human race alive, but also to keep God's plan and process of redemption continuing to unfold. And of course, thankfully, this process of redemption also included the animal life that was on the earth. We are going to see, as the entire story of Scripture unfolds, that multiple times God used this exact same plan. As a group of people became wicked, God would sort among the wicked and find someone that was righteous or that he could declare to be righteous and then make actually righteous. God would use that one person, and then through that one person, he would continue his overall plan of redemption. And again, as I've said, this is a process that was repeated more than once, even after the flood. So the general process was God creates or establishes a person and gives them commands that are to be binding on their descendants as well as on them individually. But those descendants begin to ignore the commands, so eventually God has to take action to separate out one person from the many to continue his plan. God is rather persistent, isn't he? And even when we don't cooperate with him, he continues to implement his plan. That's a good lesson even for us today. As Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, quote, God is the one who began this good work in you, and I am certain that he won't stop before it is complete on the day that Christ Jesus returns, unquote. Yes. So Noah and the covenant name for him represent an absolutely essential step in God's overall plan of redemption. God will only permit wickedness to persist for so long before he steps in and puts everything back on the right track. The Noahic Covenant is the first very graphic illustration of the fact that God's plan never varies from its focus. God's plan is always focused on redeeming a people for himself. And so, in a certain sense, God's plan is focused on the people that he is redeeming for himself, but God's plan involves all of Adam's descendants all of mankind. But the process of selecting a person, giving commands, the failure of large numbers of people to obey the commands, and then God taking corrective action until he finally makes another selection, we see in the Bible that that process unfolded four times over a period of 4,500 years. But the process stops when God sends his son, Jesus, into the world as what Paul calls in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the second Adam, or the last Adam. So a process that had been going on for 4,500 years, literally from the time of creation, through Adam, through Noah, through Abraham, through David, that process, that pattern that had been in existence for 4,500 years, that process by how the plan of redemption was pursued, that process ends when Jesus arrives in the world. 
And Paul calls Jesus in 1 Corinthians quite appropriately because he is the conclusion of that process. Paul calls Jesus the second Adam or the last Adam. So the process that began with the first Adam that never produced the effect that God was seeking ended with the last Adam, Jesus, because now the plan of redemption had come to its fruition in the person and place of the Messiah arriving on the earth. Wow, that's a pretty remarkable thing to think about. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 and 19, Jesus said, quote, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, unquote. Jesus giving that command to his disciples is very similar to the commands that God gave to Adam and Noah to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Exactly. But unlike the first Adam, the second Adam, Jesus, did not disobey the Father. And because Jesus obeyed the Father perfectly, there was no need anymore for God to repeat that process of rejection of most of the people and the selection of a single person to continue the plan of redemption. God no longer had to interrupt that process of multiplication and filling the earth. So for the last 2,000 years, God has just continued the process of adding people to the church. God has not had to interrupt that process of adding people. He hasn't had to narrow it down to one person and then begin again. God has just been able to continue the process of adding people to his church. Now, of course, the rate of addition varies. The rate of addition of people in specific geographic areas varies. But that process of just adding, multiplying, and filling has continued without interruption ever since the arrival of Jesus, ever since the arrival of the second and last Adam. And by the way, this is a process that not only has been continuing for 2,000 years, it's a process that continues even in the present day, and it's a process that will continue until Jesus returns a second time to consummate all of history, all of the history of man and all the history of the earth. That's when this process that Jesus inaugurated of just adding people to the overall body of believers who will join Jesus in heaven, that process of adding people to the church won't end until Jesus returns for the second coming. Yikes. That's both a scary and exciting thought all at the same time. God really has been pursuing a single plan the entire times the heavens and earth have been in existence. And as we've discussed, That plan was focused around a single person, Jesus, and it was focused on a people, the church, and a process, redemption. But God's plan has a planned ending that just hasn't arrived yet, but that ending is described in the Bible too, in the book of Revelation. And just as God has continued to pursue his plan through all of its iterations, it is absolutely certain that his planned ending will occur at the time that God has determined. Sounds like a great time for a prayer. Prayer for President Trump Great Father of wonders and miracles, we glorify your name, for you are sovereign. Your ways are as high above ours as the heavens are above the earth. When you stretch your hand, all creation turns in obedience. Lord, We pray that you would stretch out your hand now and grant healing to President Donald Trump. We know that even though you are high and lifted up, that you still remember the afflictions of your people. 
you have a heart of compassion for us. We pray you would remember President Trump and be the great physician that he needs. You have said in your word that the fervent, effective prayers of a righteous person will bring great benefits. We offer those prayers now on behalf of President Trump and all those suffering from this terrible virus. As you command, we pray that Donald Trump and others might be restored completely. Lord, we pray you would grant wisdom and understanding to the doctors and nurses that are seeking to help President Trump and the other patients. We pray you would guide their eyes and their hands, that you would superintend all the help that they provide. We are grateful for their care and service, but we want you to know that we place our trust in you and you alone. As you knit each of us in the womb, we know that even now it is you that brings restoration to President Trump's body and spirit. We ask for you to be with President Trump in power and perfection. In Christ's holy and precious name, we pray and give thanks. Amen. Amen. We'd like to remind our audience that a lot of our radio episodes are linked together in series of topics. So if they've missed any episodes, or if they just want to hear one again, all of these episodes are available on your favorite podcast app. To find them, just search on Anchored by Truth by Crystal Sea Books. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where... We're not famous, but our boss is.